Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, Honest Conversations with Under the Radar Folk Musicians. It's Cindy Howes. Oh man, my life is still really weird where I'm like still living in Pittsburgh, but like my house got sold, which is awesome. I'm like basically like in a weird place, you know, where I I don't like live in Pittsburgh anymore, but I don't yet live in Boston. Um... I got uh, a place in Somerville, Massachusetts that I'm pretty excited about, and I'll start working at WERS um, in February as their marketing and promotions manager, which is, like, gonna be so fun. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Also looking forward to, like, being back in the fold, so to speak, in the Boston music community, which basically inspired me to start this podcast. It's such a rich scene of folk music, Americana, bluegrass, roots music, and one of the most exciting bands coming out of the Boston music scene these days is Lula Wiles. Their new album is What Will We Do? And today on Basic Folk, we are going to be talking to member Eleanor Buckland from Lula Wiles. But before we get into exactly what she and I talk about, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. All right, Basic Folk receives support from Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management, who encourages listeners to check out the songwriting duo Mick Dean. You can download singles from their forthcoming EP by going to mcdean.co slash basicfolk. All right, so we get into it here on Basic Folk with Eleanor Buckland, who is of the band Lula Wiles, like I was talking about. Uh, she and uh, Issa Burke and Molly Obamsawin all come from rural Maine. So we talk about uh, Eleanor's upbringing and learning music at an early age, uh, being around music pretty consistently. Fiddle camp really paints a picture of what it's like to go to fiddle camp. She talks about her family quite a bit. Um, Her brother suffered a traumatic brain injury, which uh, really changed her and her family. And she got her to talk about that a bit and forming Lula Wiles and, you know, just making great tunes. So before we uh, listen to our interview with Eleanor Buckland, we're going to hear a song from Lula Wiles' new album. Again, the record is called What Will We Do, which, hey, pretty cool, the uh, album was premiered on NPR First Listen, which is awesome for Lula Wiles. We're going to hear the song My Hometown, which is from the new album featuring Eleanor Buckland on leads, and then we'll get to our conversation with her on Basic Folk.
you want me to call you Ellie or do you want me to call you Ellen? So this is like a great question. This is actually something that like you and I are friends. So I'm Ellie to my friends and to people who know me and like the way that I am just as a person in the world. I'm definitely Ellie, but I made a conscious decision to have my professional name in music be Eleanor because I wanted there to be a separation between just like me as a person and somebody who that you as my friend know intimately. I don't, Mm. but I want there to be some kind of like artistic separation. It's a pretty new change. Like Issa and Molly on stage, they'll still be like, Ellie, I mean, Eleanor Buckland on stage or whatever. But I think that the way I've thought about it is that like in any kind of intimate situation that it's like I'm completely comfortable being called being called Ellie and just it's like in the liner notes of the new Lula Wiles record anytime I'm being introduced on stage anytime I'm being written I think about. yeah written about or talked mm-hmm. about so I think like if there's any section where we're like oh yeah this is Eleanor Buckland's thing or like Eleanor Buckland is in Lula Wiles but you and me talking during this podcast like just call me Ellie yeah okay that's way easier and that's how I want it if that makes sense uh where did your name come from I'm pretty sure my parents named me after Eleanor Roosevelt and I know that they wanted to name their kids and specifically their daughters they had two daughters like my sister Abigail and then me Um, they wanted to name us like pretty complex names, nothing that like something that felt really solid and like, um, had some substance to the name. Mm -hmm. My middle name, Francis, one of my favorite things about my name is the fact that my middle name is Francis and that I have such an old fashioned sounding name, Eleanor Francis Buckland. I've always, as a kid, I always really liked that. Um, and Francis, I'm named after my dad's great aunt. My great aunt, my dad's aunt. I don't know. I'll have to like, dad, don't fact check this, but whatever. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, she was a spy for the U.S. Navy. <laughs> so yes. And I think I'm allowed to say this now that like she's not alive. But yeah, um, she was my dad's aunt and my mom. She was like my mom's favorite aunt of my on my dad's side. And she like had cats and was really weird. And anyway, so I got named after her. But I don't use that. Nobody knows that except all of you listening now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you are a fourth generation musician. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And people in the folk world know your parents? Well, not my mom. My mom is not a musician. And she's a casual musician. She does community choir. It's very cute. Um, and this is an awesome farming and this is in Farmington, Maine, where I grew up. I was born there and uh, grew up there. But my dad is a professional musician, but I don't think, but he's played a ton of different styles of music his whole life. And so in the music community in Maine, like in whether it's like blues and rock or like, he just mostly played rock music forever. And then mm-hmm. like when I was born and I think he was getting into like folk and bluegrass styles when I was really little. That was something that like he was sort of going back in his musical roots as my grandmother was a bluegrass musician. So he was sort of like getting into 
um, you know, like learning more about that type of music. But for like his whole thing was rock and roll, you know. And so actually in Boston, he and my mom lived here in Boston during the 80s. My dad was playing all over town. It's like so interesting now living in Boston, figuring out how like who knew my dad or like I'll meet people mm. and um, and realize that like they used to play in a band with like somebody that he used to play in a band with or something. And like, so a lot of my friends here in Boston who are like of my dad's generation, they're like, Oh yeah, I remember Andy. Or like my dad would be like, Oh yeah, I remember Dave Champagne. Like he played in Treater Wright and all these. (laughs) And so that's been really cool about living in Boston is like learning about my dad. How do you say your dad's last name? Buckland. Oh, I thought it was something else. No. No. What's his first name? Uh, Andy. Andy Or Buckland. Andrew. Okay. Yeah, whatever. Andy Which, Buckland. He yeah. probably on stage goes by <laughs> <I> Andrew. <know>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's always just played, like, electric guitar in a bunch of groups. Yeah. So music seemingly was everywhere for you when you were a kid and you had three siblings? Yeah, I had three siblings. So on my dad's side, my aunts and uncles all would, like, get together and sing and Growing up on my, when we'd have big get-togethers on my dad's side, there was a lot of, like, mostly just, like, jamming songs, right? Like, we would all just, like, sing songs together. And then, like, once I was playing fiddle, when I was, like, five or six, I started playing fiddle. Mm -hmm. And so once I started playing fiddle, it was, like, I would jam along on the fiddle, but it was probably, like, hilariously not... (laughs) Uh, you like know, it would be like, thing. oh, let's have Ellie, like, play a fiddle tune, and then we would, like, all go back to, like, <laughs> singing other songs. You know, I wasn't really, like, soloing at age six. It goes back in, on my dad's side of the family, that's the sort of fourth generation thing. So my grandmother, Betty Buckland, I never met her, but she was a bluegrass musician. She taught my dad guitar and taught all his siblings how to sing. And my dad's side of the family is really, is quite large, and we're all, like, very loud and have a great time when we get together. Um, we have this like lake house in the family that we would all converge on during the summer and spend like tons of nights playing music on the porch together. Those are my some of my strongest and like my most fond memories of music during my childhood is with my family up at Lake George. That's cool. Yeah. And your, your grandmother... Is from Appalachia? No. So, like, her her parents were, but she she grew up in New York. And I'm actually, I'm a little fuzzy on the details of this, but you go back to, I think it's her dad. Her, so her parents, one of them was also a performing musician. And so that's sort of the, where, like, the four generations comes from. Yeah, she played bluegrass banjo in the 60s and was, like, one of the only women at that time playing Scruggs-style banjo. So that's, like, the three-finger very... It's, like, what you know of as right. bluegrass, the bluegrass sound. But, yeah, so she's sort of a personal legend and hero of mine and somebody that, like, yeah, I really wish I could have met her. Did you ever get to hear any of her performances? Well, we don't have any recordings that I'm aware of, of her performing, uh, performing out. But I did find in, oh my gosh, I was just Googling her the other day for, I was trying to meet somebody down in Nashville. It's unrelated to the story. Anyway, I was Googling her and I found 
in the folk New England archives, like a scanned copy of some sort of like arts magazine or even just like it wasn't a playbill, but it was sort of like a listing kind of. I think it was basically like a la Dig Boston before mm-hmm. Dig Boston like existed. Like an alternative weekly Yeah, yes, newspaper. or something like that. Yes, and and in it, it has this like little thing where it's like Betty and the Moonlighters, and her name was Betty Buckland, and she had a band that she would, she would like led the band. She was like lead singer and played banjo, and like it was her band called the Moonlighters because they all had other jobs and they were just like moonlighting as musicians. Mm. And I one day dream of at least playing some shows as Eleanor and the Moonlighters just as homage to her, but the day <laughs> has cool. yet to come. Um, but so I haven't, so that was really cool to find that and like just like see it in print that they were performing at like two different coffee houses around in Massachusetts. That's cool. But then we do have recordings of parties that they used to have like it was just like this home tape recorder kind of situation that they would just like set up on the table um and my dad remembers this that they would always have parties like in the basement and at his house and so it's like set up and you can kind of and they like and some of them it's just like going for the whole party and then there are like a bunch of tunes and it's like people jamming and it's a lot of like bluegrass greats and legends that were around New England at the time. Peter Rowan played with her for a short time when he was like 19. And the Osborne brothers were really good friends with with Betty, my grandmother, and Larry, my grandfather, who's not a musician, but just was like <laughs> down for the hang. <laughs> down to clown. Yes, yeah. And so, um, so some of these parties have like some of those folks, but also just like local musicians that were really into yeah. it. And um, so in these recordings, you can hear like, them all just like chit-chatting and then they'll play a song but then you can also hear like glasses clinking like they're all like drinking and partying and then like also recording their jam sessions so those are the recordings that we have no performances i have a question about your brother so talk about his brain injury yeah. So you told me about this a little bit, mm-hmm. and then it does come up in at least one of your songs. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me more about the injury and how that experience like creeps into your music yeah. beyond just like that one song that you mentioned? In right. It? I think it was five years ago. I, it's always hard to keep track because... I feel like it was so recently, and then I'll, you know, like, look at the calendar and realize, like, oh, my God, it was five years ago. But, yeah, so my brother suffered a traumatic brain injury um, while skateboarding, and it was, without, like, sensationalizing it, it just was the most intense thing that had really ever happened to my family, at least, like, the six of us, the nuclear family, in terms of, like emotional turmoil that we all went through and it really affected us all so deeply and like you know I think also like most of all my brother and that's something that like you know it's like he's still recovering from it but he's actually doing super well he like just got married it's incredible he made this just like miraculous recovery and he had incredible doctors and an incredible like rehab team but it definitely made me think about life and death and just like what that all means and and it was the first time in my life where I 
really confronted on confronted on impact you know not just like oh here I am going on in my life and like maybe I'm thinking about death now but just like really confronted this idea of like whoa what is gonna happen if my brother dies or like what is there's definitely like one specific song that came out of it that we recorded on the first Lula Wiles record don't ask why but I think it affects I think it will continue to affect me for my whole life right that experience right and like the ways in which that brought my family together you know brought us closer in some ways and also I think we would all say this I feel like it's okay for me to say this you know (laughs) is that it also tore us apart in a lot of different ways like there are these like sort of tears in the family that that any family has Mm -hmm. obviously like the nuanced way that family is and so I find myself being drawn to write about those kinds of things even now like years later right and I can't cite specific songs but like there's one that I wrote and recorded and it's like not gonna it's probably not even gonna be released whatever but that it, it it is about the moment when yeah when I was just sort of like I don't know what's gonna happen here and like who do I even believe in like I don't have someone I'm going to pray to like I don't think this is like there was no destiny here. Like, I just think that happened, right? Um, yeah. So I have another song about that, which is similar to what Don't Ask Why is about. But, yeah, I sort of got rambling. It sounds I think like that a, was your question. No, totally. you, yeah. yeah, yeah. It sounds like the, the topic of, like, uncertainty yes. is coming up for yeah. you quite a bit. Specifically uncertainty with, like, I guess in referring to just Kyle's injury, my brother's injury, it's like, it makes sense. It's like, oh, yes, this life event happened, and now you're thinking about uncertainty of life and death and mortality. But it's interesting that you were listening to all that and said, oh, yeah, uncertainty, because that's another, I feel like I write so much about uncertainty, (laughs) not about death, but about not understanding one's own feelings. And, like, I feel like I end up writing a lot about that, or, like, that is definitely what fuels my um, desire to write is the desire to try to figure out what the heck I'm even feeling and so for me like sitting down trying to write a song about it really helps me like put into words and melody and music things that I feel that I didn't even really know I felt so it's sort of like I'll like chip away at all this, all like the words and the ideas in my head. And then all of a sudden, like I'll get to a point, I'm like, all right, like this is what I'm feeling, you know? And, and often I'll get to that nugget or whatever. And I'm like, oh, right, this is what this song is about. So I have to like go back and like change the whole thing once I've like figured it out or whatever. But yeah, uncertainty is something that fascinates me, especially since I think it's kind of like discouraged to feel uncertain and just kind of, you know, it's encouraged to be like, oh yeah, like, get your shit together and like have it together and make sure that not, I mean, well, definitely like social media, it's like, well, it's going to look together, but also just have it together. Mm -hmm. There's all this, I think there's pressure to have that. And then, so I had had another question that actually, so like I felt weird about it. Cause I'm like, I have a question about your brother's brain injury. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then I have a question about Chester Greenwood day. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But it actually ties in. So Chester Greenwood is the famous inventor of earmuffs who's oh, yes. from Farmington, Maine. Chester Greenwood is a, was a great man. And Chester Greenwood <laughs> Day is something that's celebrated in Farmington every oh, yes. December. Oh, yes. And it seems, so it's like everybody wears earmuffs, somebody yeah. dresses up as Chester, and yes. then they put earmuffs on the police cars and the fire yeah. trucks. Yeah, this year, it's so funny. Um, I haven't been home for Chester Greenwood Day in a long time, but it's like... 
Oh, it's just so classic Farmington. Totally. And I actually don't know. Here, let's get specific. I don't know if he actually invented earmuffs, but he holds the patent for earmuffs, which is implied that he invented it unless he, like, killed the man. Right, right. Then now he owns the patent. We'll have to check his Wikipedia yeah, yeah, exactly. page. But here's will my, be fact-checked. Here's my question that sort of okay, ties into yeah. what you were talking about. So Chester Ow. Greenwood Day in Farmington, Maine, where mm-hmm. they put giant earmuffs on the police cars to celebrate this guy who owns the patent for it. Yeah. It seems like a very small-town characteristic, yeah. which is, like, unique, but might be seen by outsiders as corny, you know, like so, so corny. Yeah. Um, and it seems as though a lot of people in life are faced with this sort of like duality of like, I'm oh, yeah. corny, I'm from a town where they put earmuffs on police cars, but also like, I'm very well put together and I'm very smart and well-spoken and right. aren't I smart, you know, but like, you're yeah. like, I just want to like, go back to my corny farm town and put my corduroys on (laughs) totally well not so much corduroys but i did buy a pair of overalls and i've just been loving wearing them (laughs) in the big city so i just wonder if that like i don't know if that base of small town like corniness like helps you out in this kind of situation interesting that's such a good question and i've never thought about it specifically or like in these terms but because don't you think that when you know you can present yourself like an image of yourself as being this you know instagram perfect type of Mm -hmm. person but then when you reveal like the the um the quirky vulnerability of like this is this this is a part of me Mm -hmm. people like it well yeah i think that Well, I have a few thoughts. One is that I think that the, I think during hard times, like especially emotionally hard times, I think that in, I mean, my my only experience of this has been, you know, growing up in a small town, but there were really strong community connections there that like a lot of people would just show up to support each other, right? And so I know that when, when my brother got sick and was recovering, like that was a big part of what it meant to be in a small town was that like people were showing up and were bringing food and were helping my parents. And the other thought I had unrelated to death, (laughs) but yes, this idea of like sort of like mask or like picture that we paint of ourselves as, I mean, I'm specifically thinking as a professional musician, there's like a lot of, you know, there's Instagram, there's Facebook, there's the website, there are the promo shots. It's this whole thing. And then you make, an album and you talk about the album and those things you're talking about are real, but in a lot of ways it gets sort of like, it gets curated. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've found this to be true with Lula Wiles and with my own, the music I make on my own, like not in that band, is that the songs that, the songs that are like about the uncertainty, the songs that are like about your quirks or like being a mess. The real, (laughs) yes, I am a mess. Yeah. And, and the songs that, and the songs about like asking yourself, like what the heck you're even doing. And, um, that the response from listeners is really powerful to those songs or those moments, or even like explicitly sharing with people, whether it's, you know, I, for instance, with Don't Ask Why, I, I like to say, and I used to a lot more, like when I would introduce it, 
um, on stage with Lula Wilds, I would say like, oh, this is a song that I wrote for my brother and my family when we went through a hard time. And then that sort of sets the stage for like, you know, then the listeners are, or the, you know, the audience member, they're listening through that lens. Mm. And like more often than not, somebody will come up to me and say like, oh yeah, that resonated with me because I felt similarly in a different situation. And when I don't say that on stage, it doesn't happen as often. And I think by like saying the thing and opening up to a whole bunch of people, it's really similar and really different to like me opening up to you as my friend. Like I told you about that just as a friend, but it like creates an intimate space for that kind of sharing to exist. And then when you do that on stage, when you like open that up, I think it's giving the audience permission to feel and to share with you. It's kind of like what you're there for. It's like the whole point. Eleanor Buckley. (laughs) Yeah. But there are, I mean, there are a couple of songs that like when I play, I just, I think they do stand alone, you know, without saying anything about them. But if I do want to say something to like open up the window of vulnerability a little bit more, like I will. And I think that can like Mm. enhance the emotional experience of listening to music if you're given the okay to feel deeply. I think it is time for us to talk about Fiddle Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, you and There comes a time in every podcast where one must talk about Fiddle Camp, at yes. least the folk podcast. Right. <laughs> totally the folk <laughs> podcast. So Lula Wiles is your band, and you met Molly. Yes. Technically, you met at a swimming lesson, yes. um, which hopefully came in handy, and you guys know how to <laughs> swim. Uh, and yeah. then you and Isa and Molly all went to fiddle camp together. Yes. Okay, so set the scene. Set the scene. So it's called Maine Fiddle Camp, and it's in Montville, Maine. And this camp is incredible. It's It happens at this point three weeks out of the summer, and then there are two weekend camps. So they're like five sessions you could go to. And the camp is – the purpose of the camp is, I think, to – Um, kind of preserve and celebrate the music culture in Maine, the folk music culture in Maine, and specifically, like, Maine fiddle tunes. So, like, these, um, yeah, folks from Maine or moved to Maine who are writing new fiddle tunes or, like, collecting old fiddle tunes. And so, but there's also, like, logging songs, right? Because Maine was, there's, like, a long, long tradition of loggers and like all these loggers boasts and these songs that have been collected. Oh, yeah, it's very cool. And then also sea shanties, um, because Maine is a coastal, an ocean coastal state. And so there are just so many great things about the Maine music history, right? (laughs) And so that was kind of, I think, the, like, original point. But anyway, to set the scene, all of the classes take place outside under tents. So even when it's raining, you're, like, under, like, a small little yellow circus tent. (laughs) And they're, like, striped. Though, actually, big drama is that a few years ago... The main fiddle camp main tent changed from yellow and white stripes to blue and white stripes, and it's completely crazy. Wow. So, <laughs> so there are just like gaggles of different age kids with fiddles and guitars and mandolins and accordions and like penny whistle and um, bass. Um, yeah, because Molly was Molly was learning bass. Isa and I were both learning fiddle. Isa and I, um, as my bandmate in Lula Wiles, we 
bonded in one of our first fiddle classes because we had the same favorite tune at the time, which was Hull's Reel. And I don't even think I could play you that tune anymore, but at the time (laughs) I loved it. So yeah, imagine just like you love the fiddle and you're hanging out with a bunch of other like 13, 14, 15 year olds who also love the fiddle. And the fact that you are really into fiddle music is probably like kind of weird mm-hmm. at your school or, I mean, not all your friends do it. And so just being at a camp where like all of your friends are right. also so stoked to learn. Like all these like-minded, yeah, weird yeah. people. And it's an all-ages camp. That's something that's really special about it. So there are like babies there with their like young parents and then also like 80-year-olds who have been going for, you know, since it started and still like sawing away on the fiddle. <laughs> It's an amazing place. Did yeah. other, uh, did your other siblings go? No. So I kind of, my, my siblings and I, we were all quite musically inclined as young kids, but I was really the only one who like grabbed hold of it and kept doing it really avidly, um, taking lessons and being in a bunch of music groups through high school and then like kept at it. And so my younger siblings were way too into sports to go to fiddle camp, and my older sister sort of, like, just did more singing, and so she didn't end up going to camp until a few years ago. I brought her as an adult, and she was learning cello, and it was awesome. That's yeah. cool. So there's this tradition in certain folk circles of teaching each other. It's funny to use the word tradition again, but, like, mm-hmm. traditional songs. Mm-hmm. It seems to me kind of like making somebody a playlist and, and being like, oh, this man. is what I like. You know, so I just was wondering. That's such a good analogy. Yeah, can you can you talk about about that act of like teaching your friends a traditional song, and then also have you ever used that as like a a way to try to like become friends with somebody or like really try to get to know somebody? Wow, like you would a mixtape. These are oh my gosh, these are great <laughs> questions. Well, there's definitely something that can be super romantic about this idea of like getting really close together and like being like oh this is how you play this tune and so here's this phrase and you like play the phrase and then the other person plays it back and you have to like be kind of close and it's that way um if it's like a one-on-one thing yeah it can be really intimate and I don't think I I can't think of an example of a time where I did it in like a manipulative way of trying to get to know someone. But, um, but definitely it's a way to get really close to somebody. I can think specifically of Issa. We became really close because of that exactly. Um, you know, we, we bonded about Harry Potter, but we also, I remember her teaching me how to play this old-time tune called Old Yeller Dog Come Trotting Through the Meetin' House, which is an incredible title. Um, <laughs> and she taught it to me when, I think when we were like 13 or 14, It's a it was a really cool way of becoming friends with somebody because you're like, yeah, it, it's there's a closeness that comes with it. And it's definitely a really special thing that I've found in the folk community that I don't know if I've found other places, and I'm sure it exists, but the experience of like sit- a bunch of people sitting down together to jam and trying to figure out like, oh, what songs do we all already know? And kind of trying to discover like what are the little like nuggets of tunes where it's like, oh, two people know this tune or this song or this traditional song. Mm-hmm. And I think this is true in with non-traditional music too, like contemporary folk music or sort of like in classic country music like Emily Harris and Graham Parsons like really campfire yes campfire songs Mm -hmm. where a bunch of people sit down together and it's like as long as two people know it it's like oh yeah let's play it and then the other people 
are sort of, it's like this window into this, you know, there's a bond of like, oh, we know this same tune, and now all of you can learn this tune from yeah. us. Especially if the jam is small enough or like cohesive and, and really like open and welcoming enough. Um, it's a super special thing. Uh, so talking yeah. about the live music experience mm-hmm. um, with Lula Wiles, I've yeah. never seen you play solo as far Cindy, as I know. Cindy, that's crazy know, to think it? about. Yeah. Other than at Miles of Music. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is a, <laughs> is a music camp, which is much like fiddle camp, except there's mm-hmm. all sorts of instruments there. Yeah. Um, I want to know what the live music experience is like for you, because you seem like to like transport to like some place that seems really nice, you know, like a really good like what is that place like for you? What's that when experience? When I perform? Like? Yeah. Yeah. Um no one has ever asked me this before. I feel really alive when I am singing and performing and I think that it's generally a really good place, right? Like you know, like, <laughs> um because yeah, singing and performing is, you know, like, up there, top favorite things to do in life. Um, and the way it feels to sing and the way it feels to especially perform, now that I write my own songs, perform songs, basically sort of be like, hey, this is something that I felt and I think is real and I think might matter because it matters to me and so maybe it matters to you. I think that... The experience of performing when you like believe in what you're singing or you believe in the music or the connection that you have with the other people on stage, which is definitely the case in Lula Wiles. I think part of the reason that I love performing with Issa and Molly in that band is that we do have this really, really strong connection. And so, you know, after so many years of being friends, but also musically, it just like really works together when we're up there together. And so to be able to put that all like put it all out there and you're like hey I'm singing with like my best friends and you know we love each other and we're like proud of this music we're making and we think it matters and maybe you will too it's like all of that rolled into the experience and oh I feel like I'm I'm having such a hard time uh articulating this because it feels more important than the words these sort of like plain (laughs) conversational words that I'm coming up with but it's really powerful and so I think that is probably what is shown like what if you've seen me perform it's like and what you're talking about I think Mm. that's what's happening is I just am like I'm definitely in a good place. You know, I definitely feel like really, for the most part, really happy when I'm performing. Yeah. Except when you're not. (laughs) Except when I'm like in a dark place. So I don't, uh, I feel like I have so many questions for you, but I just want to mention that you went to Berkeley. I did. And that so happened. did Issa. Mm-hmm. Did Molly go to Berkeley? Molly went to Berkeley for three semesters, um, and then she left. But so we all three went to Berkeley for various lengths of time. What was your focus there? My that is a great question. Oh, <laughs> uh, what was my focus? Um, my focus originally was violin performance. And I quickly got so stressed by that. And I also fell in love with writing songs during my first year of 
college, first year at Berkeley, um, I hadn't been a songwriter, and but I'd always been a singer, and and singing had been such a like deep part of who you know my identity. And as soon as I I met a few songwriters at the time, Laura Cortese, who's a good friend of mine, and um, at Miles of Music Camp, I met all of these incredible songwriters there, and they were just like people that I was meeting, and I sort of realized, oh my gosh, like all that I have to do to be a songwriter is to just like write a song. There's not like a big like, deal. <laughs> you have to fill out a form. No, there's no form. There's no bureaucracy in songwriting. Yeah. And and also I will give a shout out to Maya DeVitri and she's definitely she it was instrumental in sort of like me feeling like I could be a songwriter and our friendship during my first year of Berkeley. Anyway, so the point is I was deeply unhappy as a performance major in the violin department and the string department is great. I love them, but it was not a good fit for me. And Mm -hmm. so I switched my major to songwriting, worked with some incredible songwriters and then I dropped out, but that was my focus. My focus was violin and then it was not violin. (laughs) And I have a complicated relationship with my violin, which is not a secret. Uh, And then, and then my focus was songwriting and continues to be my kind of main musical focus even now. Um, So Club Hasim is the folk venue in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It really gave Lula Wiles the opportunity to develop on stage. Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, can you just explain briefly what happened at the club for your band? And then is there a way to like put into words why that artist development was so important to a band like Lula Wiles? Oh man, it's such a good question. What ended up happening for us in the band was that, I mean, there are all these incredible opportunities at Club Passim to perform as like a new band, um, specifically these this like campfire festival that happens a couple times in the summer, like once at the beginning of the summer and then at the end of the summer, I think. And Issa and I were playing as a duo, and I think and we played a campfire festival. And Matt Smith became just uh, I mean an incredible supporter, but an early champion of the band and. So as soon as we had Molly in the band, he started booking us before we even had a band name. And then when we had our like first dumb band name, and then finally when we were Lula Wiles, he just (laughs) thought of us all the time to open for people coming through town. And so for like six to eight months, we were opening shows like every other month. It was, I mean, maybe not exactly that, but just we had so many great opening gigs. Like we opened for Mike and Ruthie and we opened for Rose Cousins there, there were other folks too, but those um, to stick out to me. And so Matt did a really great job of just helping us get in front of tons of different people, like all these other artist audiences. I think Matt, I mean, Matt Smith is part of like what the heart and soul of Club Passim, you know, is, but the community at the club and then Matt himself, it's like, it was a way for us to connect not only with new audiences, you know, each of these opening gigs, but connect with the musicians themselves, right? And so, like, you know, after we opened for Rose, like, a couple years later, we did a bunch of opening shows for her on her album release tour, and then now we were we're playing Mike and Ruthie's Festival in February, right? So there, I think, was that the, that was the first part of your question, right? Like, like how did that happen? But then then why why was it so important? It's exactly that, because it was, it's multiple folds of importance, right? Of this, like, oh, you're exposed to so many audiences and then you meet all these musicians and those connections are so lasting, I think, Mm. especially in the folk 
music community. And I say especially, but it's really because that's like mostly just what I know. And I'm like, <laughs> how can this? Yeah. And, and so, um, I mean, I feel like I could talk forever about what it is like to be in a band with only women and the way that feels when, in the way that people talk to you, in the way that presenters are, in the way that promoters are, like the number of times that men say really, really uncomfortable things to you after a show and the power dynamic is such that they're the audience member. They have, they bought the ticket and most likely they just bought your CD and then they're like standing there and they're saying some like something that's just like gross or really out of touch and it's like, do I react or do I just <laughs> let it go or do I like... It's really hard, and it feels really uncomfortable. Um, you know, all girl band, like, that's not a genre of music. That's just, it's like a fact. You know, mm -hmm. we're like the three of us in a band. But, um, and, you know, we all are women and identify as women, and so it's like, um, it's a part of it. But it can be really uncomfortable and in the industry, and there are, there are situations where, yeah, especially at festivals or, like, different situations where people are drinking, there becomes, like, a, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm definitely, like, on my guard hmm. a lot, and I wonder, I don't know if that's the case for men when they're at the festival yeah. and it's late and people are drinking. Like, I don't know if they're on their guard. Right, probably not. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So I've noticed something that is true of you and Molly and Issa is that you do not participate in shaving. Mm -hmm. Is that... Totally a question you can ask me. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to know more about that. Like, mm -hmm. what is the reason? Was it a yeah. collaborative decision? It wasn't a collaborative decision, but it was something that I think we all just came to on our own, like, on our own timelines. Pers and, like, I can only speak to my experience. Um, and, oh, man, like, the way I grew up, I think, was pretty wonderful. Like, I have this incredible relationship with my mom and... She's always had short hair and is just like never, but like never shaved ever and was always like, she's a nurse and she's like really, was always really comfortable. At least I found it to be really comfortable talking with her about kind of anything. Like when I got my period for the first time, I was just like, cool, I can talk to you about this. But she never wore makeup and she never shaved and she never... We didn't have television growing up in my family. And, like, the major reason, and my mom has, like, told us this, is that she just hated the way that the way women were portrayed or, like, the roles in which they, like, had to be in on television and and just kind of, like, the general media before there was, like, our phones and the internet and everything. She was like, I can control that there's, like, not going to be kind of just um, generic, like, you know, television. Yeah, but so as far as, like, shaving, I just sort of asked myself, like, why the heck am I doing this? And... And now it feels really, I just feel much more comfortable that way. And then, like, I shaved my legs. Yeah, and shaved my armpits for my brother's wedding. You know, and it, like, felt fun. I was wearing this, like, really great, I love the dress I was wearing. I was wearing these fun heels. And, and so it felt very much like a special occasion. But as soon as the wedding was over, like, as soon as I went back to my life, it felt really strange to have shaved legs and, like, no hair under my arms and. I like that when we're on stage as Lula Wiles and if it's a summer and we're wearing like a, you know, a sleeveless dress or something or whatever, like, and people can see that. I like that because I think that that should be normalized. Like that is okay. And there's one 
amazing story I just thought of is that so at fiddle camp at a fiddle camp that we teach at called Ossaby Valley String Camp it's not the one we grew up going to but Isa and I have been teaching there for a while and Molly just started teaching and um we teach there we have taught there in the past with Brittany Haas and one of our students who was maybe like 12 or 13 her mom told us a story and she came up to me at one point she was like hey I just want to let you know that like she's at that age where like She's going into middle school and she's been like asking me about shaving and like all these different things. And this is in my voice. It's like the first time when you're like getting a bra or like what is happening with my period, whatever, shaving. All my friends are doing it. Anyway, so this mother was like, she was talking to me and she's like, you know, I don't think I want to shave under my arms because like Ellie and Issa and Molly and Brittany, they don't do it. <laughs> and it's like, I didn't have, I wasn't like looking on stage and seeing, I, I, I don't know. I can't think of people I was seeing as a young person, as a musician, where like that was an okay way to do things, mm-hmm. right? And maybe it's like a drop in the bucket of the ocean, <laughs> but that feels good to sort of be like, right, being a woman and like becoming a woman can look like a lot of different things. Right. And it doesn't have to be one thing. And it can also be this ongoing process of like exploration and discovery that like you're like, oh, I think I know what it means to be me and to be a woman. And then you learn more and you figure out you didn't know. And then you, I don't know, so you stop shaving or you start shaving again and like whatever the heck. But like think about, I like the idea of like thinking about why you're doing it or why you're not doing it. Um, Just being engaged in that part of it. Sweet. Eleanor really. Buckland. Thank you, Cindy. It's been fun. Thanks. Yeah, I was so honored to be on there. Eleanor Buckland of the band Lula Wiles. The new album, which I feel like we barely talked about. I don't think we even talked about it at all in the interview, but it's really great. It's called What Will We Do? It's out now on Smithsonian Folkways Records. Thank you for listening to Basic Folk. Also want to say thanks to our sponsors. Okay, Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management, who suggests that if you like this podcast, you'd also like the band Tina and Her Pony. You can check them out on your preferred streaming platform or follow them at Tina and Her Pony on Facebook and Instagram. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk, 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUP.org. Thanks to my producer, Laura McCarthy, who, hey, this is the first basic folk that Laura edited all like by herself. She did a fantastic job and she's just the best. Thanks to Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople for uh, our music on Basic Folk and we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks. Bye. Oh, my God. This podcast is going to end with discussion of armpit hair. I love it.